Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So nice to see you. Do you, do you know what this is? It's a staff. It's a staff. No, it's not a staff. It's a mushroom. <laughs> and it occurs. I'm in sort of an explaining mood today, so I'll explain something a little later. So it just occurred to me. This is a symbol. So you get this symbol after you've passed through a couple of ceremonies, and it's a magic mushroom. The one that is um, literally it is. <laughs> Royce often carries the staff, but it has the same function. It's it, it's supposed to grant wishes. So whatever wish you have right now. <laughs> but it also has the, a bit of a shape of a, of a hook. And so one explanation by a Zen master I'll be talking about a little later is that it you hook the Buddhas and bring them down to the ceremony. So they're already here, but... <laughs> So it's April, and I heard our co-tanto telling you all the things coming up in April, and I was waiting out there for like 20 minutes. So. <laughs> it's a busy month, all this dharma, all these wonderful things, and it's this amazing season. In a few days, April 5th is Passover, and then April 8th is Buddha's birthday, and April 9th is Easter. This is an amazing time of year for us humans. And the uh, coming together uh, at this time of year, the celebration of the coming together of the, the sacred and the whatever, profane, the, the holy and the ordinary, this is a celebration of all of these things coming together. The entry of the holy into our world. All of these things are celebrations of that. And all of those holy things like the Buddhas and uh, everything holy is already here, but we need these reminders. And of course, some, well, some traditions think that it's always all, already here. Some traditions think you have to work really hard to get it here. Some traditions pretend that you have to work really hard, like Zen, we pretend you have to. <laughs> <laughs> but in truth, all of them know that the holy is already here and that we're all products of this holiness. So it's happening. I like uh, to bring up Easter because it's quite possible that the uh, word for Easter, which is only used in English-speaking countries, you probably know, it's quite possible that the um, word for Easter comes from Istra, who's a goddess of the East. Uh, so pre-Christian times, this goddess of the East. But Wikipedia will tell you certainly this and that and the other, but Oxford Engli English Dictionary is a little more circumspect. So <laughs> unfortunately, I had to go to the Oxford English Dictionary. And it said, well, maybe, maybe it comes from that, but maybe it just comes from the very ancient word for East. But all other countries, like in Spanish, what is it? Pascua. Pascua, yeah. Pascua and Paschal, Paschal celebrations from Passover, because that's what's happening on April 5th. That's what's being uh, reenacted on April 5th. And then Easter, so in Western English speaking countries, we say Easter 
also has this nice resonance with very, very ancient practices in um, England and Germany of honoring this Istra, this goddess of the East, whose companion is a bunny. We want, why is there a bunny at Easter? Well, she's the companion of the goddess Istra. And in another kind of calendar coming together phenomenon, um, this is the 12th, this is the year when the rabbit shows up in Chinese astrology. So this is the year of the rabbit. And all of you born, yeah, how many people know that they're a, a rabbit? It's a great year. How many people don't know what you are? Oh, oh wow. <laughs> Some people in the room are tigers, rats, rats very smart, snakes, dragons, all sorts of things. But the rabbit comes this year with the goddess Istra, and she just come the rabbit just comes in uh, Chinese mythology right now. You're the rabbit. Uh, I forgot to look up the qualities of the rabbit, even though I am one. So just imagine that they're very complicated and good. <laughs> <laughs> so holiness coming in. Um, I recently was in Bali with, a fr with several friends, actually. And we went for various reasons, partly because a friend of mine who goes there often uh, is getting kind of old, and I thought maybe there wouldn't be an opportunity to go, so I thought this was the time. And how many of you have been to Bali? Okay, right. You lived there for a while. Six months. Six months. And Richard, you've been? My wife's from Indonesia. Oh, are you from Indonesia? Oh, awesome. So Bali is an island in Indonesia which is Hindu in a largely Muslim country. And so this time of year, the reason for going at this time of year is that there are major ceremonies also connected with calendars, but in Bali, they have several calendars. So I, I won't go into what all these ceremonies right now, but I can tell you about them later because they're very complex and they're very deep. The thing I want to connect with, with us today, though, is that in Bali, people are making offerings to the holy all the time, all the time. We have ceremonies and then we go our ways and some of you have altars at home and some of us think of um, the holy now and then. In Bali, they're thinking about it all the time. Every morning, people walk outside their houses and they have little offerings. Some of them are really beautiful. Actually, they're all beautiful. Woven um, bamboo leaf little baskets about the size of your hand, palm of your hand, with a little bit of cooked rice, some flowers, a piece of burning incense across, and it's just put down on the ground or on the sidewalk in front of your business or in front of your house, all over the place. And even the sm a small offering would be like a little rectangle of, I'm not sure, some kind of leaf, little rectangle of a leaf with a little bit of cooked rice on top put down on the sidewalk and I was walking by and this is just ordinary. This is not done for any witness except the holy. Um, so May and I were up really early, like 4.30 going for a walk and the um, proprietor of a scooter rental place of which there are many um, was outside. He had a tray with these little squares of leaf with cooked rice on top. He was putting them on the sidewalk and then on the seat of every scooter, 
And then Maya and I being Zen people um, wondered about the status of these offerings. So we're very carefully stepping over all the offerings, but they were everywhere. And uh, so we asked our, our, the head of a village who was accompanying us and explaining everything. He said, oh, no, no, they've, they've fed the spirits. Now they're just out there and they'll be swept up later. So we didn't step on them, but after it's like a, it's a leftover at that point. So they fed the spirits and then you go about your business until later in the evening and you make that offering again. So this feeling of interconnection and relationship with the sacred, we're on this side, the sacred's on that side, it's, in, it's permeable, it was everywhere. Quite nice. And then we came back and we went to the museum, as Gail described, to sit in front of a bunch of calligraphy by really great artists. Um, and there we were in this sacred setting. We made it sacred. It was already sacred. We made it sacred. But why... Why? And part of it, I want to talk about one of the great teacher, calligrapher, artists who is very well represented in this show called Hakuen. This is not Hakuen's art, but this is an expression of a Zen master's understanding. And Hakuen's art is there, but I thought this would be a good um, example of what is meant when calligraphy is described as a spiritual practice. Calligraphy and Zen painting is ink on paper or ink on silk. There's no mistake. You don't paint over it. You don't edit it. You can't um, touch it up later. Actually, I have seen cause touch things up. Don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, black ink on white paper or white silk is the mode. And so when a Zen master um, prepares, the preparation is a lot longer than the action. When the preparation, when they prepare, they prepare the ink, they prepare the paper, they prepare the setting, they are a unified being. And then with the brush, they make this expression. So this is by a, a living Zen teacher. Shodo Sato. And this is by Kaz, who comes here often, and he likes to work in color, which is quite unusual in Japanese calligraphy. But Hakuen's art, when you see it, is very free and still very um, involved in this idea of bringing the, the sacred into the world bringing ultimate reality into the world. So who is Hakuin? So to introduce what I want to talk about, let's turn to page 10. This is why, this is the, the explanatory urge I felt after sitting in the presence of Hakuin's work. Um, Hakuin is a, a Rinzai Zen master, and we are technically Soto Zen. We are Soto Zen. 
But that's not a distinction that we should um, harden too much. Zen is Zen. Uh, Buddhism is Buddhism. But Rinzai is Rinzai and, and Soto is Soto. This is Song of the Jewel Mare Samadhi is a very important Soto Zen writing. But um, Hakuen comment as a Rinzai teacher uh, studied it very closely. So on page 10, let's say, like right here, although it's not fabricated. Let's read that and then stop um, like right here on the next page. Okay. Although it is not fabricated, it is not without speech. It is like facing a jewel mirror or an image behold each other. You are not it, in truth it is you. Like a babe in the world, in five aspects complete, it does not go or come, nor rise nor stand. Baba Baba, is there anything said or not? Ultimately, it does not apprehend anything because its speech is not yet correct. It is like the six lines of the illumination hexagram. Relative and ultimate interact. Piled up, they make three. The complete transformation makes five. It is like the taste of a five-flavored herb, like a diamond thunderbolt, subtly included within the true inquiry and response come up together. Okay. So some of you in this room have been chanting that for many years, and some of you are hearing it for the first time. And those of you who are hearing it for the first time, um, it's a poem, right? So just let it wash over. And those of you who have been chanting it for a long time have a grasp of it. And so I want to go into what that is a little bit more. So do you think one of the most puzzling parts of it is um, it is like the six lines of the illumination hexagram, relative and ultimate interact piled up, they make three? Do you think that's rather confusing? No, you guys. <laughs> what that is a description of is, this is Dongshan, very much a Soto Zen master, very important to Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan. But what that is a description of is this teaching in Zen called the Five Ranks, which is one of the ways of practice that it can keep us encouraged along the path past a moment of awakening. Mm -hmm. So this is meant for people who've had a moment of awakening to the sacred, okay? This is not meant to get you to awakening. This is meant to acknowledge that anybody reading this has had a moment of understanding the sacred permeates everywhere and to try to keep us from getting stuck there, okay? So, Hakuen picked this up and wrote about it and talked about it. Another really very amazing thing about Hakuen Zinji, whose art is down at the museum, he, he was active a few hundred years ago, three or 400 years ago. Um, so this is his, one of his books. We have um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is Suzuki Roshi's book, very important book. We have records of all the... Teachers I've mentioned, Dung Shan and all Dogen, many books. So there's lots of records. 
one of the unusual things about um, Hakuen, like Dogen Zenji, is they made sure their books got published. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi is very much a classic Zen teacher. He kind of didn't publish anything. He died, and then his students got his books together for him. That's kind of a classic way to do it. But Hakuen knew what he had believed and knew that what he had to say was really important. So he made sure his books got published. He went around and um, um, I'm trying to avoid using the word harassed. <laughs> he went around and really encouraged people to help him get these books published. So this is half of his major record. Beautiful translation. He calls it, this is Hakuen's title, Poison Blossoms from a Thicket of Thorn. <laughs> so he's calling, he's making sure you know that he thinks his teachings are kind of poisonous because they're, they're not exactly reality itself. It's his version. And Thicket of Thorn is Zen practice because there are many things to get stuck on. And anytime we think, I've under, I understand it, got it, and hold, that's a thorn catching us. So Zen people want us to be free, want us to have understandings and realizations and then not get stuck. So this, this teaching about with the uh, relative and absolute piled up making three, that makes sense, right? The relative and ultimate piled up. The relative and ultimate. Okay, this is very important Buddhist teaching, not just Zen. All of Buddhism revolves around this idea that there is uh, Buddha nature, an ultimate reality flowing through things, and it's expressed in us. And then there's this phenomenal kind of relative reality that we see, stopping and starting, preferences, liking and disliking, birth and death, praise and blame, gain and loss. There's a relative reality going on all the time, conventional reality. That's going on all the time. And when we are completely submerged in conventional reality, gain and loss, we, we live our lives um, in total suffering. I'm keeping track of gain. I'm keeping track of loss. I'm keeping track of um, birth and death. And I'm driven like... Um, I'm driven on this wheel of suffering. One of the differences in the Hindu practices that I learned when we were in Bali was, um, it's beautiful, you know, I love the rituals and the great clothes and <laughs> the art mm -hmm. and the carvings. Um, and humans are given a really high status in, in Hindu practice, as is practiced in Bali, so I don't know the universal practices, but humans... And then there are caste systems. So Bali has a very strong caste system. But the ranking of life, I found this a little bit different from the way we talk about the insentient world and animals. Uh, ranking of life is that at the bottom are non-living things like rocks. In a Zen temple, well, I won't say that. Um, and then next are things that don't have a voice like trees and plants. They're on, they're, they have status, but they don't <clears throat> talk. Next above that are things that have a voice like dogs. And then next above that are humans who can actually communicate in a different way. So that's a, those are kinds of distinctions we don't make so much in Zen, 
but they are distinctions of um, understanding conventional reality. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's assumed that humans can understand conventional reality and see a way through it. So that's why humans and in Buddhism are given tremendous, um, we're considered, this birth, this life is considered a tremendous opportunity for growth because we can understand our suffering and we can understand the traps that we're ensnared in in a way that I'm pretty sure Baku, my dog, doesn't necessarily understand the, the snares. He's happy when food arrives on time. He's confused <laughs> when it does not. <laughs> and a human would say, well, it's late. Um, I can practice with that. I can develop my sense of patience with that. Baku is not developing. Well, he's pretty patient, actually. <laughs> so hum this birth as a human is considered the platform from which we can understand the relationship of the conventional and the ultimate. So we begin to understand that and then either just spontaneously or as a result of spiritual study, you have a moment of waking up and you see through and you see all of this is glorious and expression of the holy. It's possible, right? That can, that's called satori, that's called awakening, that's called liberation. And for Hakuen and for Dungshan, this is called the first of the five ranks. And they call it the phenomenal within the uh, ultimate. So they, what that means, what they're calling it is um, you have an experience of the, actually, the whole thing is ultimate reality. And then phenomenal is just a part of that. You know that or a person can know that they're, well, you easily know that you've had that insight, but you know that you're kind of stuck there when you don't want to deal with conventional reality. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is really nice. I'll just stay in this monastery forever. Don't let those guests in. They have so many problems. <laughs> I only want to be here. That's when you know you're. It's a. It's a the first rank. And then, luckily, if you if you are lucky, then you have a sangha to practice with. You have books to read. You have teachings, and you continue to practice. You don't give up. In the monastery I practiced in in Japan, um, one of the practitioners, students before me, I, I never met him actually, but he had a big awakening and the teacher acknowledged it. So the teacher acknowledged this is a big awakening and he didn't acknowledge that very much. He acknowledged this was a big awakening. And so the guy stopped coming to Zazen because he had his big awakening and he eventually wandered off and wandered around Japan glorying in this big awakening he'd had and the teacher there the abbot said uh, he wasted it mm -hmm. and eventually he came back basically starting over at the bottom because he didn't know how to deal with what had happened so the next stage on this uh, five ranks that 
or Dongshan says, it was like the six, six lines of the illumination hexagram, relative and ultimate interact. They are interacting. So this, that, the next stage is called the universal, universal within the phenomenal. So the big picture within the events. And a lot of Zen practice is about this. Tea ceremony is about this. Flower arranging is about this. It's that within the particular, the universal, within the um, mundane is the holy, within the activities of interacting and conversing is the holy, within. So that's a very important development in practice. So that's the second rank. And then... We stay in this. Of course, you, these aren't linear in the sense that you get you graduate, but because we can move around in these. And then the third rank for Hakuin is the mutuality of the two, where they go back and forth. You see them. One doesn't mask the other. They, you see them, and you begin to work. So you begin to work with the seeing. I think I, I think there was something nice. I mean, there was a lot of nice things that Hakuin said about this. And became quite poetic on this one. In this rank, the Mahayana Bodhisattva does not dwell within the realization she has attained. Her great compassion shines forth unconditionally as she is carried forward by the four great and pure vows into an ocean of free and unrestricted activity. Um, and this is where he started quoting Dogen Zenji, which is fabulous because it's a Rinzai teacher quoting and acknowledging Dogen Zenji, who was a couple of hundred years before him, as such a great Zen master. So he quotes the uh, the lines in Genjo Koan that we also recite all the time, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion, that myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. So you're in this state, Bodhisattva's in this state of seeing phenomena come forward and seeing your own expression as your, as your understanding. It's, he says, uh, free and unrestricted, whipping the Dharma wheel forward, seeking deeper attainment above while helping other sentient beings below. This is what is called the return. That is at the same time as going forward. So that's the third of the fifth ranks. Do you want to hear the fourth rank? <laughs> the fourth rank is called arriving at mutual integration. So the fourth rank is where um, bodhisattvas are really um, eager to work in this dusty world, really eager to stay in this dusty world, which means fully connected to the ultimate world and yet really eager to find a way to be of service in this world. So that's 
the real Mahayana goal. And the real Mahayana goal is not to get off this wheel of suffering for self or my family or my friends, to get off this wheel and provide myself with comfort and an exit strategy and a prep, prepper. prepper. <laughs> I know about that. Um, the real bodhisattva strategy is to stay deep, deep, deeply in touch with the ultimate and just keep finding complicated places to work in the world. Isn't that interesting? So that's arriving at mutual interpenetration. And again, Hakuin Zenji has wonderful poetic descriptions of this. He, I'm describing as, a, as poetic, but the title of his book, Poison Blossoms from Thicket of Thorn, he had an even more harsh title before, but his, his friends kept softening it for him. He was actually quite harsh, so, and nice. The writings are really great. Um, the fifth one, so the fourth one was arriving at mutual inter interpenetration. The fifth one is arrived. And he has very little to say about this because this is sort of the realm of Buddhas and highest bodhisattvas, difficult to describe. He does use one uh, phrase, though, that also comes from Dungshan and the song of the Jewel Mir Samadhi. Oh, I have to say something about the song, the Jewel Mir Samadhi itself, which is filling a, filling a bowl with snow or filling a lake with snow. This is the activity of bodhisattvas. Helping people is like filling a bowl with snow. Do you get it? It's like, just put the snow in there. Just keep helping. It's melting. Okay, just keep helping. It's melting. It's invisible. Just keep helping. It's not like um, putting in rocks until you get a whole lot of them. It's just snow, snow. Just keep helping. But it takes um, a lot of everything, patience, wisdom, everything, in order to stay in that relationship to reality and in that relationship to other humans. So all of us, all even Kuan Yin would get tired of just helping. Okay, there are 10,000 more, just helping. Even Kuan Yin would get tired of that. So all of us get tired and all of us have to learn how to refresh. The Jewel Mir Samadhi, I wanted to say, Hakuin and Dungshan, the jewel mirror is second uh, rank. So in the jewel mirror, you, the bodhisattva, um, sees phenomena as they are. But the mirror is reflecting itself. So when you're in the jewel mirror samadhi, you're looking in the mirror and the mirror is looking at you, it's two mirrors reflecting each other. You are just a mirror for the reality you are seeing. You aren't a reactive, um, what are, you are not a limited human being. You are a mirror looking at reality. What do I see in front of me now? And it is a mirror looking back at you. So that's what is meant by the jewel mirror samadhi, second rank of the five ranks. 
So I just felt like explaining these, these sentences to you today. This is what we are um, sometimes practicing around here. We are practicing to um, support each other in this amazing endeavor of staying present in this world, which is both holy and extremely difficult, full of suffering. So we see suffering all around us. We practice together. We refresh each other. We reach out to each other. And we just keep filling the bowl with snow. So thank you very much.